You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about making machine learning work in the real world, and I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Alad Gill and Sarah Guo are very prominent and successful investors in startups and especially AI startups. And they're also the co-hosts of the No Priors podcast, where I appeared recently. This is a really interesting conversation around the future of AI from an investor perspective, and I hope you enjoy it. I thought I would start off with a real softball that I'm genuinely interested in, which is one of the things, <laughs> I've, one of the things I admire about you, Sarah, uh, from my interactions with you, is you've really stayed on top of the LLM research in a way that I'm frankly jealous of. And I'm curious how you're finding research papers and how you're reading research papers and, and thinking about that. Yeah, I don't have a good system for this. I actually just um, asked the World Brain Twitter or X about if there's a good home for discussion of new papers, and got a bunch of different um, different answers, including you know like automatic new search engines for research. But um, you know, I tend to be pretty portfolio company driven about it, right? So we look at the investments that we are. Um, working with and then are you know paying attention to the different labs and to different universities in terms of who's doing work in these areas that could feel relevant. Uh, and then I have a paper reading group. Uh, do you, well, I guess what papers have actually informed your thinking around investments recently? Yeah, so I, I think like a lot of other people, I'm, I'm pretty interested in code gen. Uh, I think it'll be useful. I think it could be democratizing. Uh, and so there are a number of different um, papers that have looked at the idea of it, like what sort of feedback you would want, like what validation um, you might uh, use to improve the quality of generations in a production environment. And so um, there are papers that are out of some researchers out of MIT and Microsoft Research, um, as well as DeepMind uh, on um sort of the idea of self-debugging uh, and uh, test generation and how to use um, different tools we have in software development for improvement of quality. And I guess a lot, you've invested in some code gen, uh, or at least one code generation company that I know of. Do you find this kind of research relevant? Like, is that something that you expect your portfolio CEOs to stay on top of? Or do you think that kind of companies generate more insights internally that are different than the research? I think it really depends on what you're trying to do and like what the product is and all the rest. So, you know, I, I think um, in CodeGen in particular, there's almost two angles on it, right? One is, can you um, train models that are more performant in terms of the generation of code and have bigger context windows so you can dump an entire re uh, repo into them or do other things like that? And those are often research problems initially, or at least engineering problems with some research routes. Um, separate from that is just like, what do you need to build from a product perspective? And I guess one could argue that a lot of the code gen companies are actually going too far down the path of wanting to do researchy things and not enough in some cases in terms of just like, let's ship a product quickly and see how people react or what are the top five things that people really need. And so I think there's a lot of stuff you could probably just do on GPT-4 that nobody's doing, including GitHub, right? <laughs> that would actually be quite useful to people. And then there's ways to hack context windows or other things that people have shown in terms of being able to, you know, deal with larger and larger amounts of input. So I, I think, um, I think it's a mix of both. 
And undoubtedly, there's fundamental things that people could do that are better. But also, I just think there's a bunch of products that people should just be doing that they aren't doing, surprisingly enough. I guess um, I feel like software engineer has probably been the the sort of like archetype of a founder that you know seed investors like yourselves are probably looking for. Do Do you think that changes in a world where code generation gets much better? Like, are are you encouraging your kids to to even study um, writing code? I'm encouraging my kids to just be on UBI. I think that's the best <laughs> outcome for them is just, you know, giving up on life and, you know, just doing UBI. So I'm very excited about that for them. You know, a really random aside, and then I'll let Sarah actually answer the real question, is um, I think CodeGen is misleading for the entire industry in some sense because it is um, a couple years ahead of a lot of other application areas. It uses a form of language, so it's more tractable for LLMs in certain ways. It's very highly ordered logic in some cases and very structured in some cases, if you think about it. And so it actually has a lot of characteristics that in some sense makes it a tractable problem where other problems may be much messier because you're dealing with much shittier human input relative to what CodeGen has to deal with. And so I feel like CodeGen is always going to be a bit ahead. And not just that, but engineers love working on it because it makes engineers more productive, which means it gets way more attention than any other area. And so I actually feel like we're going to see these massive advances in code gen, which are going to be incredibly impactful and important societally. And we've been extrapolating that to all sorts of other applications. And one could argue that those other applications are going to de facto fall short because they're going to get less attention. They're going to be less intuitive for engineers, but also they're going to be less tractable from a problem set perspective. So I think it's, it's this really interesting thing that's kind of like causing a lot of people to think that we're farther ahead than we actually are as an industry. Yeah, I, I think Alad's point is valid on um, application to different tasks, but yeah, I, I think you guys are both biased as I am in this um, in this way. Like, being able to generate software is a pretty exciting, like, general purpose tool, right? And so we can write software, we can generate software to take on many other problems. Um, and so I uh, I agree, it is ahead. And then you know. OpenAI in particular is ahead of others in this area. So I also agree that um, for many applications, you just want to use GPT-4 and even GPT-4V. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I think often about this question, like I have three kids and like, what are they going to learn that will be useful? Uh, at Conviction, we held this hackathon for a bunch of um college students that were hacking on AI projects that had built something cool or won their school hackathon or whatever. And I was struck by, these are all, you know, CS majors, right? And the um, universality of their belief that like, it's irrelevant, they don't need these skills in the future. And then like very soon people will stop learning to code was very surprising to me. And I was like, oh, but what about debugging and architecture and garbage collection, all these things that felt like important to learn. And so um, I don't think that set of um, understanding is uh, no longer useful, right? Um, and you can see it in like other creative fields as well. Like is traditional video editing useful in the age of um, increasingly high quality video generation? Yeah, because like your ability to change um, something with very great control increases your expressivity. Uh, but I think like it takes the baseline up in terms of the number of people who can create software. And that piece is really exciting. 
if I translate that to like what I want for my kids, I think I'm still going to be like, well, you can't just be a really crappy software engineer now and you have to be a good engineer. Yeah, I've been teaching them garbage collection as well. I'm like, pick up the garbage. <laughs> so it's very, <laughs> I think it's very important for kids to know the basics. Mm. Well, it's, it's <laughs> funny. It's funny. Like, I feel like you could almost maybe get away with being like a, a bad software engineer if you have a good sense of what you want to build versus someone who kind of goes deep. But I don't know. It does. It did feel to me like it's probably a different skill set to write applications, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's it's probably like um, uh, like different directions of like where you could take the skill set. One is like being um, more product oriented, as you described, mm -hmm. right? Like the the creative piece versus the mechanical piece of like, well, plugging together like these four APIs that's been done infinite times before, like that's probably not as useful as like thinking about um, user interaction or mm -hmm. uh, like what you There's can do. There's a surprising number of connector companies today in some sets, right? You have um, uh, things like Fivetran, you're just doing a bunch of connectors. You have, uh, you know, one could argue something like Lean is a bunch of connectors in terms of different internal data sources. And if you look at any implementation of like ERP or um, <clears throat> a few other product categories, you're effectively just doing a bunch of different data integrations. So I think to Sarah's point, a subset of software engineering is going to go away. And if you look at the world of um, of software, if you look at the global economy, I think I've seen estimates that it's something like $500 million a year is spent on software and $5 trillion is spent on services. And so I think a lot of the AI revolution that's coming, at least in the short term, is going to be eating against those services, right? And that's where you're going to see um, certain aspects of like consulting services like a Wipro or some of the more sort of... Um, you know, like computer science companies in some sense um, being uh, addressed through some of these APIs or through some of these applications. And then you also see it in things like legal with Harvey or, you know, some people are looking at accounting or other areas. And so I think there's there's all sorts of interesting other translations that are kind of adjacent in some sense mentally to code gen. That well, could be funny, really interesting I, over time. I wasn't actually sure where you were going with that because I was thinking, okay, on one hand, it feels like what these applications often really need is good connectors to make them work inside of my company like a glean. But mm -hmm. then also, as, as you point out, the connector code might be some of the best applications for automatic code generation. So, you know, where, where do you land on that? Like if I was pitching you on the, on a modern, modern five trend, I guess next gen five trend, <laughs> a few years after five trend, does that feel compelling or does that feel like, ah, oh, that's going to get, um, uh, like washed out by AI? It depends on what it is, but for certain application areas, I think it's going to be really compelling depending on whether or not it's attached to a workflow. Or in the case of something like Lean, you're actually building like sort of old school um, indices and IR based approaches, right? And so you're basically building out all these connectors so that you can create an index and then query that index in different rich ways. And so there is some more complicated stuff that you're building on top of that in some cases. So I think it really depends on what you're actually doing. Um, but hmm. I do think it opens up a whole category or set of categories of software to competition in ways that they weren't really tractable for competition like five years ago, right? Because if you'd spent six months implementing an ERP instance or implementing Workday or implementing whatever giant software system, and all you were doing was really writing connectors in to pull data from one thing to another, 
Um, now you can suddenly just have an app that could potentially spin those things up for itself or copy over your data structure or whatever it may be. And so suddenly you can start competing with things that were much more defensible before. So I think it does create really interesting startup opportunities. The categories of things that um, I think uh, are really attractive for maybe initial code gen applications tends to be like, well, what is the engineering out there that a lot of engineers don't want to do, right? Um, integration, migration, customization, internal tools, right? Uh, I think there are a bunch of domains of engineering that are considered like secondary or um, repetitive, like big maintenance burdens. And uh, as a lot was saying, like if you um, if you look at the size of the technology businesses, that that kind of customization and integration and risk of migration like protects those are very big businesses right and they may not be as protected in the future so i don't know if the shape of the company is a connector style company or maybe it is one of these um sort of core workflow or systems of record companies or you know platform companies that actually has inroads in a market that felt very um uh I don't know, ingrained simply because the workflows and the investment was so high, like the, the workflows were so standard um, across the industry and the investment was so high. So I, I think that is well, like, I think it's like, a, I think it's still like really nascent as a possibility. And like today we're in the like general tool making era, like lightweight interfaces to these models era. Um, but I'm excited about it. Well, so you guys are being incredibly um, reasonable and thoughtful, but you know, that's not going to generate clicks. So I think we need to get more specific and get like real opinions out of you. Like when, when you look at a company like Zapier that probably a lot of us use, does that seem like a good investment or a scary investment? I think Mike and Wade and the team are making a really big bet on AI. And I, I think that's like both like, I mean, if you hear um, what Mike has talked about in terms of uh, the impact it's had on their company internally, just in like in terms of pervasiveness of use, like I think they're I think they're real believers, but I, I think they probably also see the risk of um, you know the reduced cost of actually writing a point to point integration. <laughs> so it looks like maybe they think they need to evolve into something else, doesn't it? I think the companies that I've seen adopt this technology the fastest have been. Um, sort of technical founder-driven companies or very product-centric ones. So that would be Zapier, that would be Notion. Um, you know, there's a variety of other ones. And so you kind of see these fast adoption curves for people who are kind of realizing how big of a deal this is. Mm. And if you look at Zapier as an example, um, you know, Mike was looking at different um, AI technologies and, you know, uh, should Zapier get involved with like an AI research institute or other things like that quite early before the before ChatGPT came out and this big wave happened. And so I think people have been very, um, very forward looking in some cases, whether or not they thought it was going to immediately impact their business. And then of course, ChatGPT came out and then everybody kind of woke up to really how deep a lot of this stuff was, right? That was kind of the starting gun for the industry. It's only been a year. And so I think everybody kind of forgets how little time has actually passed and how big of a wave is actually coming because most enterprises haven't really started thinking about this yet. So. Um, I think we're still super early in this in this um, era, and whether something is an opportunity or a threat for different companies will be 
you know, something we'll only understand in hindsight, and it's going to depend a lot on how companies react, right? And so I think um, there's this broader interesting question of like, you know, what sort of value goes to incumbents versus startups, and how do we determine which goes where? And in general, I think an emerging rule of thumb is if you have an existing workflow and you're just adding something onto it, whoever owns that workflow will probably win. And if you're either going to rip and replace or there's a new workflow to be built, then that's probably a startup opportunity. And so I think that's kind of like a, a sort of almost generic basic rule of thumb, which will be wrong in some cases around um, around who needs to adapt to this world versus, you know, um, uh, who can kind of coast and then three years later launch the AI-enabled AI version because they already have the distribution and a lock-in workflow. Okay, well, I'm, I'm curious more broadly when, so I, you know, I sit here as like a fan of, of AI applications and, you know, I see kind of a range at weights and biases, but I feel like you two have this amazing lens where you're getting pitched on new AI applications constantly. And so you're probably seeing a different set of things than, than I'm seeing as just a consumer of it. And I'm wondering if you feel like the stuff you're seeing gives you a different lens on what's working and what's not. I think there's definitely been a series of things that have shown explosive growth over the last year or so. And so that's everything from the obvious ones like Midjourney or ChatGPT or other companies like that. But you also see very rapid just adoption of different products. And that could be something like a Perplexity or Pika, you know, a character.ai, um, which, you know, uh, the public information is that the average user spent something like two hours procession on it, which is insane if you think about the amount of usage that equates to. Um, and then obviously there's a bunch of stuff on the more traditional B2B side um, in terms of things like Harvey or other companies. So it, it seems like um, there's definitely been an era of very rapid traction and adoption of AI-based products. And I think that shows how big of a technology discontinuity these things represent. And I think we're still very early in sort of the, both the hype and the adoption cycle. And some people say AI is over overhyped, but if you just look at a lot of the stuff that's coming, or if you just look at it, you know, it's been a year since ChatGPT has launched. Enterprises have largely just been in planning mode in terms of bigger companies. They're going to start prototyping this coming year, and then it'll take them a year or two to launch. So we're probably three, four years away from sort of peak AI hype. And then in parallel, you see these things growing explosively. Some of the companies I mentioned. And then there's a bunch of stuff that's just going to fail outright, right? Like 90-something percent of all AI companies just aren't going to end up working. And that's true of every single technology wave, right? 90-something percent of internet companies didn't work, and 90-something percent of mobile companies didn't work, and 90-something percent of cloud companies didn't work. And so I think we're going to see the same thing here. Um, but you do see these things getting adopted very quickly. And so I do think we're seeing a fundamental shift in terms of um, certain types of uh, technology and capabilities and all the rest of it. I think one of the um, one of the things that's been most interesting to me, not to get like squishy, but uh, is like the the set of products that has um, uh, taken off most quickly is is creative, right? Uh, and so when you look at things like Midjourney or Pika or Hey Jen. I think one of the things that's really exciting is you have an expanded definition of creatives, right? I remember one of the cynicisms about Midjourney at the beginning was like, how many people like really care about art? How many artists are there? How much are people willing to pay for illustration? Like, 
that's not a social product, like it's not commercial, et cetera. And like, well, clearly it is commercial, right? Um, across a broad set of use cases. I think it's much easier to see now that you've seen the example of mid-journey, like why something like, like Pika or HeyGen would work. Like video translates very well to marketing and advertising um, and, you know, most consumed media format. Uh, but uh, but I, I think that's actually like pretty exciting to me. Like it's pretty, I think it's well understood now. Like it's new capability, orders of magnitude cheaper, um, replacing a, in, in many ways, like a service industry, like Alad was describing before. Like these things are not really competing with video editing tools, right? They're competing with like creating from scratch or recording in a studio or drawing by hand. Um, or um, artists, right, uh, and increasing expressivity. And so I uh, I just think it's like the most obvious example of new markets or misunderstood markets from AI so far. And so if you project that forward a little bit, like I expect the enterprise stuff to move more slowly, right, just buying cycle and um, sensitivity to quality and safety in enterprise applications. There's a lot of this stuff enterprise though. So if you actually look at um, Midjourney or you look at HeyGen, I actually I would actually argue a lot of the use cases are enterprise use cases. There are a lot of the people it... who are paying for them are. And so it, it's kind of like a market expansion plus a depletionary cycle all at once. Like I know of some organizations where they've shrunken their creative team internally, you know, people doing graphic design or other things or imagery, imagery because of Midjourney. Um, so I kind of feel like it's somewhere in between. In other words, like it's not, I, I don't know how much revenue for some of these companies is coming from the, you know, the, the, I'm sure there's people who are doing it purely for creative purposes or expression purposes, but I also think it's like, Hey, I'm making a slide deck and I want to yeah. get some in images in and the Google searches suck. And so I'm going to pay for mid journey. Yeah. I think the vast majority of usage is something business related versus like pure, um, Sorry, that's not fair. I think uh, at least for the video generation subscription, I think it is like commercial in terms sure. of usage. Uh, but it depends on if you think like a product per, like are you thinking about the user segment or are you think about the go-to-market? Because today, none of these businesses has like a grown-up enterprise motion with like, uh, you know, a dude taking out people out to steak dinner with carrying real enterprise quota in like a traditional yeah. sales motion. Which is true of any explosive growth company, right? They always start yeah. that way and then they they switch over to more traditional DTM. Like that'd be Slack, that'd be Notion, that'd be Zoom. Like I think we're just seeing the same pattern in AI where you see this bottom-up adoption and then it'll convert over time into traditional go-to-market. At least it seems that way. And so it seems like a very exciting era to your point where we see this, this massive sort of grassroots and then you're going to see the the traditional buying behavior probably kick in within some period of time, just like what happened with Slack. It's kind of crazy. Slack was a great example where everybody said it was the ultimate bottoms up company. And then it, when it went public, I think it was something like 500 companies and in, in the IPO listing made up 40% um, of all of its revenue, even though it was so bottoms up. And then you look at Zoom and it was about 300 companies made up 30%. And so I think a lot of the companies that are considered the most bottoms up PLG companies eventually end up having to sell into bigger customers. Um, I, I guess from, you know, where I sit as kind of a fan of, of these things, you know, one thing that, you know, the, the image generation, video generation and code generation all has in common is it, it just like works phenomenally well. Like, you know, you look at it for like five seconds and you're like, wow, like this is 
totally different than what I could do before. Do, do you feel like there are examples where you see really compelling demos, but then you don't see explosive growth companies coming out of those use cases? I actually think that's true for um, any uh, for the vast majority of like sophisticated code gen today, right? Like you can um, like if you want something to work in a production environment and you have like a normal size repo for a normal size application, it doesn't work enough today, right? Like, and we can argue whether the problem is research or engineering, uh, but. I think there's a lot of work to get it to do what uh, you can occasionally demonstrate with like one example, one very sexy demo. Um, and so I, I, I'd say like, are there very broadly adopted tools in CodeGen today besides Copilot? No, I think like there's some heat around cursor. I think people like the experience, but um, there's not much else. And I think that will not be true a year from now. Um, I also think that like all of the uh, this is a massive generalization, but um, uh, the experimentation with agents is extremely unreliable today, right? Like one out of a hundred times, somebody who understands how these models work can get a task to completion that is sophisticated. And then that's the demo that people are showing. That doesn't mean it's not going to work. It just means like that's not like a normal human being user with a normal amount of user patience, which is to say none, is not going to use that broadly today. This happened in the 90s too. They had all these really cool like mobile phone and you know device-related demos. And they basically imagined all the stuff that was going to happen and none of it worked in the 90s, right? And so they literally had to invent like a new way of writing letters. It was called like graffiti, right? For like these Palm Pilot like pseudo like smartphones so that a phone could actually interpret what you were writing for handwriting recognition, right? You had to learn to write letters a different way and stuff like that. And so I feel like we're kind of in that era for a lot of the, these AI applications, including what Sarah mentioned regarding agents. It's it's clear what's going to happen 10 years from now. It's just going to take 10 years in some cases. Or maybe 10 five. months. I don't know. It's hard to say with the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or three months long. once we have the singularity through, you know. Yeah. Self-coding agents. Yeah, exactly. Through QSTAR. I'm actually very worried about QSTAR. So I was thinking of resigning this podcast as part of uh, QSTAR. If what QSTAR is listening, take... we are friendly. We're on your side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, okay. Um, so nothing says guy I don't want to meet like a LinkedIn profile that claims to be a blockchain and AI expert. <laughs> But I think a lot of you, that's something you might actually like put on your LinkedIn and like truly. Only um, with a hashtag. So, Only with a hashtag. You can hashtag both of them, yeah. Hashtag blockchain, <laughs> hashtag AI, hashtag generative, hashtag looking for work. So one question, <laughs> one question yeah. I have is what lives at the intersection? Control. Uh. <laughs> okay. So one question is like, what, what, how could these work together? But before we get to that, Q-star. I'm curious if. If you Q start, damn it. Sorry. What? Uh, it's just garbage collection. <laughs> Do you think there's any lessons um, from blockchain for like AI in, in terms of hype cycle? You know, I mean, blockchain now has had like three hype cycles, right? And in each one, you had a flood of people in, and then you had um, 
sort of a new level reached in terms of utilization, um, new products, et cetera. And then you had sort of these collapses. And one could argue a similar thing has happened over the history of machine learning and AI, where you had these subsequent waves of hype around different technologies. Obviously, there was really early sort of neural network-based things that ended up substantiating many years later, but that were kind of hyped and then kind of died for a while. Um, and so I think in general, technology kind of follows these same waves. And, um, you know, I, I'm still a long-term believer in different applications of blockchain, but I think they have to be driven by the underlying technology and capabilities that are provided by the technology. And so you need something where the trustless nature of the system matters, where encryption matters, where a variety of things matter. Otherwise, you have a really shitty database, right? It's basically what a lot of blockchains are. Um, and similarly with AI, there's going to be a lot of hype around certain areas that we discussed already, like agents or other areas. And those things may be long-term correct. It's just what happens in the short run and how much hype occurs around them. And then does that kind of hurt the capability to work on them for a while? I think payments is a really interesting analog where arguably um, a lot of uh, the FUD around payments was spread by ex-PayPal people because PayPal had a really tough time dealing with fraud and other things in the early 2000s because there wasn't a lot of signal on the internet. So it's hard to tell what were fraudulent technologies or excuse me, fraudulent transactions. And so then for about a decade, nobody really worked on payments because they kept hearing how hard and awful it was. Right. And so often these hype cycles lead to sort of almost delays in technology. And then you had Square and Stripe and Adgen and all these great companies get built around payments later. Right. And so I think there was all sorts of missed opportunities for a couple of years because of that. And so my hope is that with the AI wave, we're going to have um, proper rapid adoption relative to things not working, but then people exploring them as soon as they can after, right? Because um, there's going to be some really important tech that's going to get dealt that isn't going to work the first or second time around. Um, so I, I'm also a long-term believer. Like you look at the problem set and it's still really interesting right cheap rails privacy smart contracts um the ability to programmatically manage value real-time payments like decentralized money systems i think there's a lot of demand for uh solutions like the question is is the solution competitive and then what's the noise right um this last cycle actually all the cycles but this last cycle in crypto was extremely noisy uh, in that um, uh, I think there's a, a, like a bunch of confusion between speculation and people believing that making money at any point in the cycle, often based on some like lesser fools theory, made uh, was like a signal of permanence or brilliance. Right? Like one of my favorite books is um, this book, uh, "A Brief History of Financial Euphoria." It's like way less boring than the title actually makes it sound. It's like 75 pages. It's great. But um, but there's like, you don't have to read the book. There's like two lessons in the book, one of which is like whenever people make a ton of money in a hype cycle, they think they're really smart, right? Um, and I, I think the ability to quickly make money in a speculative cycle in crypto made people, um, of course, like over overhype like the potential of the technology and its competitiveness at that point. I think if you like contrast that with AI, like, yeah, there's a little bit of people making money quickly, right? Like, oh, I'm really good at like SEO for a chat GPT wrapper. And like, I might make 
a little bit of money for a brief period of time, but it's not pure speculation. And so I think you you don't have that level of noise around like this shift in technology. Speaking of speculation, I feel like one speculative place where uh, blockchain and AI may overlap is um, identity. And so I do think that if you move to like a agent-driven world, again, some end years in the future, um, and everything is represented in some form or another by an agent, which are interacting with each other programmatically. So you have an agent that represents a government service, an agent that represents an enterprise or a part of it, an agent that represents you, then there may be certain circumstances where you want to act anonymously or pseudonymously uh, with a with a service and have your agent act on your behalf. And there it's going to have to uh, present cryptographic credentials that represent you. It's going to, in some cases, partially shield or provably shield certain types of data, so ZK or other things may kick in. And so you end up potentially with this really interesting world for identity and certain aspects of your data then reside on the blockchain. It may not happen that way. Um, the other place where people talk about the overlap between these things is um, using crypto as like payment rails for AI, because then you have this, again, algorithmic ability to interact with it. I think you could also just do that with a bank account, right? <laughs> like it doesn't have to be that complicated, but um, there may be these interesting overlaps over time. Um, particularly if you want to have a secured form of third-party identity that your agents can use or interact with. Mm. Interesting. Well, I guess um, speaking of of hype cycles, it does seem like a lot of people notice that even in this kind of moment where you know most entrepreneurs are having trouble raising money, you see AI companies raising sometimes, especially foundation model companies at these really astronomical valuations. And you see, you know, investors kind of simultaneously complaining about the valuations while, you know, participating often in these, in these funding rounds. I'm curious how you think about it. Like when you look at some of these kind of multi-billion dollar valuation foundation model rounds have you have you done any of them do you do you sort of like laugh at that and sneer at that or where where do you land on on these things i realize it's a general question so you know if you want to get any specifics of any deals that would be um extra fun i think all these um insane valuations are driven by sarah <laughs> yeah with my early <laughs> stage <kidding>. fund <laughs> one woman moving the market hey multi-billion dollar valuations come thanks sarah me. we appreciate as an entrepreneur i appreciate you <laughs> It's under a billion. It's like not worth her time. She's like, yeah. What are you, small time? (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting how affected investors are by a single example, right? Like, if you if there were two reasons that valuations are what they are in certain types of AI companies today, the two reasons are named OpenAI and Nvidia. That's it, right? I think like once you have um, examples of exponential growth and the business model, like the value of being a um, market leader in a particular component of what looks like a new stack is really obvious. Um, and so the obvious ideas, there's a stampede toward. Um, and, and so I, I think one piece is that, and then one piece is a more... Um, uh, I think like true or fundamental piece, which is like if you, um, if it is a general purpose technology and it allows you to create many new experiences and you believe in a monopolistic or oligopolistic like market structure eventually, 
then the leaders are worth quite a lot of money. Um, and so I, I can see the, I, I think we can both make fun of like the herd mentality and say like there's potential value at the beginning of a technology shift in like the core parts of the stack. Yeah, I think there's kind of three related points to what Sarah's saying. Uh, number one is, um, you know, most things in, in, in any sort of company or value creation related event, everything follows a power law, right? And so fundamentally, a small number of companies are going to be worth the most. It's kind of crazy, actually, if you look at it, like the top three or four tech companies add up to the entire biopharma industry's market cap across everything, public companies, pharmaceutical companies, you name it, right? And so you see this enormous aggregation of value and valuation. And, Every time um, I call a lot about some biotech company, he's like, Sarah, spend years of my life on this. Just do software. I don't say that. I say, save the world, Sarah. Why are you only doing software? You should really help other people. Um, what? How did so you come I... to that point of view? <laughs> <laughs> Which point save of view? The, the Sarah world? one or the power <laughs> no, law one? The... So no, I the, like... the anti-biotech bias. I don't have my anti-biotech bias. I just think it's it's um in some cases more challenging and so you just need to know what you're getting into and you also have to realize there's big differences in market structure relative to software. Um so I do think there's big opportunities in biotech. Um I think that, you know, back to the power law point, fundamentally you see this massive aggregation of value relative to a small handful of companies and um it drops off rapidly. This is sort of the other point. And so everybody looks at the head of the power law and they don't look at the tail. And if you look at the head only, then everything is dramatically undervalued because if you have multiple trillion dollar companies, hey, if this thing could be a trillion dollar company, then of course it's worth entering at any price or investing at any price. But the flip side of it is most companies aren't those trillion dollar companies. And so um, there's actually a very strong um, elbow in the distribution if you look at traditional venture capital investing, where above $2 billion valuations get really hard to make a lot of money off of for almost every company because most things don't end up being a multiple on $2 billion. And one of the big mistakes that people made during the COVID era is public market valuations ran up three to four X. And so private market valuations did the same, which means all the companies that should have been worth $500 million or a few hundred million dollars ended up getting valued at a billion to two billion. And anything that should have been worth a billion was valued at three to four billion. And so you have this really big overhang of companies now that are overvalued. The way that applies to AI is again, people are interpreting everything as being the next open AI. But most things are going to fail. And if you're an investor who just happens to hit the next mid-journey and the next open AI and the next character and the next whatever thing that ends up getting really big, then you'll look like a genius if you overpay and then suddenly it grows into that valuation. But most people are not going to hit those things. Most investments are going to be bad back to that point of 99% will fail or whatever number. And so um, you end up with this weird tension, right? The at, at, In any given era, the most valuable companies always look dramatically overpriced at the time of the investment and really cheap in hindsight. That was Facebook at 500 million. Oh my God, you're paying $500 million for Facebook. And then Facebook at a billion. Oh my God, you're paying a billion dollars for Facebook. That was literally the conversation people were having. And now it's a multi-hundred billion dollar company, right? But the flip side of it is there was like two dozen other social networks at the time of Facebook that have gone to zero basically. So if you chose Facebook, you're a genius. If you chose any of the other 20-something companies, then you you know, didn't do as well. And that's going to happen in AI as well. And I think people are mixing the very best with the very worst and just giving a bucket high valuation to everything. Mm-hmm. I do think one dynamic here is just like uh, like the, the dynamics that Elad describes are 
like generally true. And then if you believe that this is a um, like a, a really massive shift that changes market structure, it's not that all the companies are going to happen in year one, but there is a period of time for leadership, like emergence of market leaders that um, where the, like a window will close. Right. And if you look, there are you can pick any industry um, and technology is like software for um, be it consumers or enterprise businesses is one of the most dynamic. But if you look at other industries, bio, defense, right? Like many of the market leaders in these industries have been the market leaders for decades. Um, and so it depends on how much you think it is like emergence of new market or like actually um, fundamental shift. Because if it is, then I think a part of the dynamic around pricing is, you know, there's some period of time where emergence of new market leaders will happen and like not after that, or it becomes very, it becomes very hard to compete with um, competitors that have, you know, already built a customer base and moats. I, I, I agree think? with that. I think one thing to add to that though, is that um, that could also argue for waiting. And there are some um, firms or investors that are just waiting on this stuff, right? Like, um, but Sarah and I, and, uh, you know, have, have in our each each of our cases have tended to invest early and stuff. But the flip side of it is, you can make the argument that if you look at the last ten years of Google, or the last ten years of Apple, or the last ten years of Amazon, or the last ten years of New York Company, they've grown dramatically more in the last ten years than they have in the prior ten years in terms of just market cap growth, right? And so, um, uh, Microsoft, I think, added almost the, they're worth say two and a half trillion. They added 2.25 trillion of that over the last 10 years, right? Or NVIDIA uh, 12 years ago or whenever it was, was worth 6 billion in the public markets. So you could also make the counter argument of if these things end up being very fundamental, why not just wait and see which ones work and then invest just either the as a late stage private investor, invest in the public markets, whatever it is. But you know, if you're thinking of it purely as an investment perspective, you could always just wait for stuff if you if you are able to. Right. Lucas, this, this is foundation that... shaking. I, uh, <laughs> you know, come to do a podcast we with two we friends, and world. instead I'm like, we rocked his world. Oh my no! I mean, you rocked my world. Now I'm like, what am I doing with my early stage fund? Just be a hedge fund investor. It's a lot simpler. Yeah, hedge funds. That's the takeaway. Just do private equity. Just wait <laughs> 40 years until you can do oh, buyouts. That's the fun that'd in be that. my advice. Yeah, breaking news on on gradient descent. Yeah, there's forward UBI. Just uh, start doing <laughs> private equity with your UBI money. Do you think that the fact that these companies require so much upfront capital to build these models affects the investment market at all? Yeah, absolutely. Most of the AI world doesn't. Yeah. Well. Okay. Go ahead. I, I'd say yeah. the set of companies. <laughs> The set of, um, I'm not saying it's like rational, but there's some set of companies that want to train their models uh, themselves. And, you know, I, I would argue the vast majority, more than 99% of companies that are going to create a ton of value, like should not be training general foundation models from scratch. Like there is plenty of work to do in terms of productization and making something work for a particular workflow or industry. Um, that, that being said, like you need a certain scale to compete in terms of 
quality and that scale is not tens or hundreds of GPUs today, which means it's really, really expensive. And then if, a, if an entrepreneur is, if, if the market is willing to bear it and an entrepreneur can raise the capital, then they're not going to give away more than X percent of their company and there's an implied valuation. And then there are comparisons if you think that you're in a head company, not a tail company, right? Um, and, and so I, I think that's what's happened in the foundation model, like tiny segment of the market. But um, uh, uh, I, I think like the the idea of no GPU before product market fit or like some of the companies that even Alad and I have been involved in that have trained really competitive models without spending that much upfront are are really exciting, right? The core premise of venture capital traditionally was capital efficient growth. Um, and, and so like, I don't, I, I think that like your, uh, the, the desire to spend a lot on compute upfront to get to a certain scale and quality has infected parts of the market where it's not actually relevant. Yeah, I'd view it through two different segmentations. Um, I think one is uh, which part of the stack are you playing at? And if you look at traditional waves of technology, you often end up with, say, I don't know what, making up the numbers, 30, 40% of the value goes to infra. 20% goes to tooling, and then 30, 40% goes to applications on top of that. And I don't see any reason that the, this pattern will be different here. There'll be lots and lots of apps things that end up being really valuable where you, you don't actually have to train a model. And then obviously there'll be all sorts of models that will be really valuable. Um, I think separate from that, there's just this view of, and, and again, the apps are probably going to be dramatically more capital efficient in most cases. Um, I think there's a second um, uh, approach, which is just saying, what are you actually doing? And... Um, how important is a model to it? And then looking at it from the perspective of is it a diffusion model or a LLM or foundation model, because diffusion models are dramatically cheaper to train. If you're doing something in an image or video, the fidelity can be a little bit lower, right? You flip two pixels, it's fine. You flip two words, it can change the whole meaning of a paragraph. And so I would assume that many more diffusion model companies or diffusion model-based companies will do their own training. They, in some cases, shouldn't, but they can at least afford to much more readily. Um, and in some cases, you just want to use stable diffusion and fine tune it or do whatever with it and just see if, if, if anybody cares, right? Um, and then on the LLM side, there may be more examples where you should be training a model. But there's probably lots and lots of examples, again, where people are just doing it inappropriately. And there's almost a break on people doing it inappropriately because a year ago, people were willing to fund all sorts of new models for random specific applications. And now everybody's just saying, why don't you just do it on GPT-4 first and see if the damn thing works or if anybody cares, right? And so I do think over the last year, the willingness to fund at least the LLM side of it has gone down with a small number of counterexamples where you have an exceptional person starting the company or people starting the company and or there's a very clearly defined reason that you should be training the model. I also think the introduction of like, Llama 2 and Mistral, even at the 7B size, have dramatically changed the market, right? Because you um, you have a set of applications where, you know, continue pre-training or fine-tuning on a particular data set becomes viable without a huge amount of spend. I like how you say Mistral the French way. That was really cool. I'm going to start doing that. Let me start. Wait. <laughs> Wait, what's the American way? <laughs> Mistral. Oh, no. Ew. 
Sacre bleu. Yeah, le mistral is the ayosek hasan, no? Arthur, I'm sorry if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, blame Sarah did, for this as well. Do you guys notice the trend that I do where um, More I French get pitched founders, all the yes. French founders, good founders. Actually, a real aside, I've been very impressed by the French ecosystem relative to AI, right? You have Mistral, you have Dust, you have Llama 2, in part being led by folks in um, France. Uh, there's a number of really cool French companies happening right now, yep. and I think it's been super impressive. So, Hugging Face, really Streamlit, totally. Hugging Face. Yeah, there's a lot of great French founders, and I think that's actually been a, a shift over the last couple of years, and I think it's really accelerated with AI, and I think that's been awesome. Do you think that, um, or do you see this trend where we've had founders, even on this podcast, where they say, oh, we train on, you know, we use lots of different models, but they just use GPT 3.5. And it's like, why don't you just come out and, and say that? Like, do, do you get that same experience and do you think it, it matters? Like, do you want to see this, like, diversity of underlying possible LLMs? If you think about why people are posturing that way, I think they're trying to demonstrate defensible value. Like, we have some unique IP. And, um, I mean, first of all, like, if it's not legitimately driving new capability and it's not important to delivering customer value, then like, no, I, I think investors should not want to see that, right? Using a diversity of models or pretending that the core driver of the product isn't like open AI is, seems like a mistake. Um, if only because being intellectually honest within the organization allows you to make better decisions. So like, do we do, I don't, um, I, I don't think I see actually a lot of that posturing. A lot, do you? You know, I, the, I don't see a lot of posturing. I think the pattern that I've observed, particularly in larger enterprises that have any sort of scale, is they'll prototype on GPT-4 just to see if the thing could work. And then if it can work, they start making cost and performance trade-offs because obviously, um, it, you know, if you're using like GPT-4, like inverts may be smaller, uh, excuse me, maybe slower than on a smaller model, it may cost more, et cetera. And so what I see people do is they start um, trying to fine tune either a 3.5 or a llama or something else or straw or other things. And um, and then what they do is they start building like an orchestrator that will like route a specific type of use case or traffic or prompt or whatever to the cheaper model in certain use cases and then to GPT-4 for everything else if they need really high performance or you know chain of logic or other things. So. I've kind of observed this evolution and there's very few people at the scale to actually justify that, right? And so usually it's pre-existing companies that have real user volume who are doing these things, or it's companies with very specific use cases where, you know, they have sufficient usage and they really need that fine tuning or they really need, um, you know, that extra performance. But most people can just use GPT and, and they'll, they'll be fine. Yeah, I th I think it's probably um, helpful to reason about a like a specific company, um, and it's like we're all podcasters here. If you look at a product like Descript, they use a huge family of models, right? Uh, and um, like because each of them powers different features, and sometimes you need a combination of models to power a feature. And it's a lot of what 
Elad said, right? You have latency, availability, cost. Um, you might have reasoning to a specific domain. You might just want control. Uh, to use another like really specific example, like if you're just doing summarization, GPT-4 is a really expensive, slow way to do like simple summarization, right? Um, and so I, I definitely think there are reasons people need to use a huge set of models, like some of, um, some of which they control. And then I think maybe where I differ from a lot a little bit here is like, yeah, I think the majority of those use cases are going to be um, like medium to large companies. But I do think there's also um, companies that are experimenting with like chaining a bunch of different calls together or doing fan out of different generations and then evaluation and if you are are doing that at scale, like the um, the sort of cost and latency becomes an issue, right? Um, I, I mean, I'm very willing to bet that the um, APIs from the largest foundation model labs like get faster and cheaper, but I think the dynamic of like people will want to do more with them uh, will continue, and so you actually have demand for both a diverse set. Do you really observe that at scale? Uh, Mistral is more cost effective than than GPT. Like I, I really like these you know open source models and I I root for them. But it sort of feels to me like you know if you if you really computed your total cost of ownership, it probably ends up costing more. I mean I could see like privacy reasons you know for for using them or maybe some kind of control. But um, I'm kind of surprised that people would switch off of GPT 3.5 for, for cost reasons alone? I think at a huge volume of calls, yes, like it, it does matter, but we also don't have the comparison yet, just to be clear, right? Today it's apples and oranges. Like you have a 7 billion parameter model and a trillion parameter model. And so um, we don't know. I think the the thing that uh, the Mistral folks well, have demonstrated the smaller model should be cheaper, right? From an inference perspective, uh -huh. unless you get some giant break on the GPT side, right? Yes, I think the thing that was interesting that Mistral demonstrated that sort of surprised the research and technical community is what you can get out of a seven billion yeah. parameter model, right? Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. the idea that you can get um, like significant reasoning at all versus at thirty four B or larger. Yeah. Well, I mean, it certainly should should be cheaper, but if you're like a real company that has to run it, you know, you need to make like high availability servers that are running it and you might not have the volume to get yeah. the But the I assume a lot of these things will push into third-party companies, right? Like Perplexity has actually launched Mistral and um, Llama as sort of very clean, simple APIs. Um, I don't know if you saw like a brain trust announcement around their sort of um, AI proxy and the ability to basically use the OpenAI SDK to query multiple different types of models. And so I think a lot of this stuff is just going to get solved via infrastructure where different people are going to be building out the ability to interrogate or interact with these models, um, either as standalone APIs, which are really simple to access, or as third-party infrastructure that you can build on top of. And so I do think all these things are going to be increasingly solved problems over time, and you won't have to necessarily have all that AI ops and DevOps and everything else to deal with it over time. 
Yeah, I don't think the end state, I don't think the state like even six months from now is um, most companies even that want to use open source models, like standing up an ML ops team to manage, for example, availability and inference on their own. I think there's a very small number of companies that uh, have the expertise and scale where that like, or the specificity of needs where that makes sense. And the rest will use APIs um, like from perplexity or um, from the vendors or others or, um, or inference platforms like base 10. Although open source frameworks might also make it easier to do this, like, like Llama CPP and others. Yeah. Do you have a um, a point of view on the question everybody asks around sort of open source models versus closed source models? Like, do you and, and you can't say both. I know you're going to say both in cases like one versus the other, but do, do like like long term, like rolling out into the future, like where where do you where do you think this lands? Why can't we say both? I guess you can say both. I don't know. I just I'm going for the clicks here. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because I, I just don't think that there are um, like I, I think it's very fun to think of like the, um, the like neat strategic answer for how a market plays out. But you look at all like you would look at a bunch of large markets historically and you're like, hmm, you know, who's making a ton of money in um, observability? Grafana. Right. And, you know, who else is making a ton of fucking money in observability? Datadog. It's not clear to me that like we're trending toward one direction or another. I think if a vendor behaves very poorly uh, and they own a core component of infrastructure and there's enough investment from uh, like, you know, central open source players. So think of um, like Oracle databases and then the, you know, long term engineering um migration to things like Postgres, right? It's because like there were vendors who kept their customers captive and enough of an incentive for the rest of the ecosystem with really strong engineering teams to like invest in open source alternative. And so it feels harder than it used to, to say like, there's going to be a database, a closed source, like relational database company that emerges. But I think if you look at most markets, they're just not deterministic in terms of structure between open and closed. I think from a, like an orientation perspective, like I'm super amazed by all of the research progress that you can have if you have the um, direction and like speed of a team like OpenAI. And also like, you know, the broader open source engineering world and the ecosystem investment in things like Llama and Mistral, I think are going to be great. Alad, you have to choose because I gave the wishy-washy answer. Yeah, and I have to apologize. I need to drop off after this question. Um, and so I don't know if, if you want me to answer this or answer something else or just drop off. So apologies for that. Um, Rada, um, actually, let me just, here's a quick question I would love to get uh, out of both of you is, what's an, what is an underrated aspect of machine learning that you think people should pay more attention to or that you would like to explore more? I think there's a lot of really interesting, like real, real world use cases of ML that are now tractable that I think would be really cool to see people do stuff with. But some of them also have interesting subtle applications. I'll give you an example. Like one project that I think is kind of interesting is, um, you know, if you look at scientific fraud, particularly in biology, there's like three or four ways that people consistently commit fraud. 
And you should be able to build an ML model that can start flagging lots and lots of cases where people just made up stuff or they reused a gel or the table doesn't quite make sense relative to the data in it, you know? And so I actually think there's all sorts of things like that that could be super interesting. That's that's maybe different from your question, and it's more focused on the application side. Um, on the non-application side, I think there's there's memory and there's a couple other things that will be really important as you start chaining some of these models that I think could be engineered in dramatically more elegant ways um, that people could potentially address. And then obviously there's other forms of understanding that could be really interesting in terms of mathematics or scientific models or other things like that, material science-based models. like. I think there's lots and lots and lots to do, both in terms of specific models to train specific capabilities to build like memory or math, um, or uh, specific application areas like uh, fraud, scientific fraud. <laughs> and I have to apologize, what? I need to drop off. So, no, thank um, you so much. I, I'm supposed I, to go I think it's a good note right to end now. on. <laughs> <laughs> drop off for the last Sarah, the last question right. too. I'll okay, let you know I'll what she you. says. All right. <laughs> Uh, the question is just like what applications you're excited about? No, it's like what do you think is an underrated or un underexplored um, part of machine learning that you might encourage, you know, someone starting out in the field to to look at or if you had extra time, you would want to look into it? Ah, uh, extra time. Um, so I, I think that one thing that's just going to be um, a little bit slower is anything that requires operational understanding of workflows where the context is hard to gather or the data is not necessarily well collected today, but the problem really fits machine learning, right? Um, and so like we talked about code generation and like some of that data exists today and some doesn't, right? Like how does something fit into a, um, does code work in a production environment is not data that is easily collected, but I think could be really compelling. I think you can extend it to lots of um, tasks that feel tenable, that are high operational toil. It's, it's basically everything I think like people should spend less time on because it is a high cost knowledge work job that is, you know, some huge percentage of it is like very repetitive, right? Uh, and so imagine um, like uh, be on call and data collection for incident res resolution. Right. Um, what am I doing? I'm looking at a bunch of Grafana dashboards. I am writing queries into Datadog or Splunk. I have some understanding of how these systems work. And uh, like many of the steps I would take in um, managing an incident or even deciding if something is like actually a problem are repetitive and you know, engineers don't generally enjoy the like be paged at 2 a.m. and figure out if it's a problem. So if you can reduce that just a little bit, that feels interesting. I think a similar dynamic exists in like security operations. If we move away from technical fields into um, like HR operations, like answer questions for people based on workday policy in different countries or in um, like corporate FP&A, like you have people who do all of these tasks at your company, Lucas, but, you know, explain like um, budget variance, uh, budget versus actual variance for every line in your income statement. 
Uh, that's actually like something that requires context, but I think is highly automatable. So teams can go do more strategic planning, right? So I, I think the the theme here would be if you look at all of these high expense, high expertise, knowledge work tasks that are actually really repetitive, like I think it's mostly like a context problem, right? And I think that's a really interesting shape. Thanks so much for... Uh for the chat we'll, we'll stop it there but um, I think that was great yeah really appreciate it okay well this is fun awesome. I hope you uh, got some stuff that you guys can cut into an interesting uh, podcast absolutely thanks Sarah thanks so much for listening to this episode of Gradient Descent please stay tuned for future episodes <laughs>